Hello and welcome back to the game bit. This is episode 118 and we are continuing our Essen Madness run and I'm very excited. Sean, there were sweaty palms across the globe <laughs> as people thought there would be no treasure hunts for Essen 2018 coming from the game bit. Are you mad? Of course there's treasure hunts. You're about to get hit by so many treasure hunts, you're going to get bored listening to them. But just as long as you download them, it counts to our stats anyway. Yeah, go for it. Yes, um, so we've already done the top 10s with Dan Hughes, and they, they were the ones that sort of stood out from the crowd. Now we're delving deeper, Ronan. We're delving into the into the throng of games and hopefully picking out some treasures. Yeah, I think the idea was that when we talked about doing a top 10 with, with someone, we could only get Dan, unfortunately, but <laughs> with, with anyone would have done, was that... When we do the treasure hunt, sometimes, because we talked about the games previously or the design or whatever it might be, they're not really a treasure hunt. We're just saying, here's a game that you know we're probably excited about. So in order to clear a load of them out of the way and say, look, you know that we're really excited about those ones, here are ones that actually are treasure hunts. I think every single game on this list, apart from maybe one today, we did really didn't know too much about. They just caught our eye for some reason. It could be a piece of art. It could be a theme. It could just be any old reason, as you do yourselves going through that Essen list. And we thought, oh... That's one I want to look into a little bit deeper. So we slap it on the treasure hunt list. And then when it comes around, we have a good old poke around. And then we decide whether we think we want to get it or not. Yeah, and of course we do have to sort of slap that <laughs> warning that these are games that we have definitely not played before. We're reading rule books, looking at videos, reading blurb about these. And that's the way we're forming our opinions. That could all change when we play them. But these are our, our, our views from afar, Ronan. It's a bit worrying that our guesses at games are continually our, our perennial favourites. They've wondered, <laughs> rather we don't try and sound clever, they'd rather we just had a stab in the dark. I think... Which is what we'll get from publishers. <laughs> well, we have, we, have, we have upset a few in the past, but I like that one because it's blue. I like blue. Dan Hughes was back there. Did you hear him in the background? <laughs> every time you do an impression it sounds different we're wibbling these are supposed to be quick we've got four of these maybe to record if we can get it done we've got to crack on absolutely and as always we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network go there into the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to download the episodes we're on Podbean iTunes Stitcher and Spotify and of course we do have our YouTube channel for pit stop videos and convention coverage first game we're going to treasure hunt for this year is Crown of Amara, a one to four player game taking around 60 minutes from Pegasus Spieler, designed by Benjamin Schwer, who's got a reputation for designing Haber games and games for younger children. This very much though is more in a medium weight Euro style. The theme is that players are trying to impress the king to become the new king. Nothing new there, but you're going to do it by housing citizens who arrive at the capital city. Players are going to score points in citizen and building points, and it's the lowest of those two scores which is going to count for you at the end of the game. The game is played over six rounds, and in each round, each player is going to take three turns of three actions. Everyone gets a deck of nine action cards, and all of the decks are identical. At the beginning of a turn, each player is going to draw three of those action cards, and in the course of their go, they're going to play them to three slots. Now, the slots are numbered one, two, and three, and where you play your card is going to dictate how far you move one of your two figures around either a country board or a city board, and in effect, they're large rondels with four spaces in each. 
In the country board, you're going to be collecting basic resources. In the town boards, you're going to be using those resources. You're going to be scoring VP. You're going to be getting advisors. You're going to be getting bonuses for things like hiring craftsmen with your resources and your gold in order to boost what you then do on the country slot when you choose to activate that one. You're going to hire these advisors. They'll boost your actions. They'll also help you score VP. There's a cathedral you can donate to the building off, which will get you bonuses, or indeed a palace you can donate to. You can also use gold and signet rings you've earned to rise through the noble ranks. And there's also an event each turn, which every player is going to have to react to, looking to boost both those scorings of citizens and buildings and be the most impressive noble to win crown off Imara. Sean. Obviously, this one utilizes a double roundel mechanism, but there's more to it than that. They're not just a roundel. There's spaces and there's bonuses and there's different things you can do when you land in each space. All driven by the action deck and the card actions seem very, very simple. It's more how you then make yourself unique and boost yourself that appears to be important. You start reading this one, you sort of, you see about the sort of two pronged scoring, the almost Knizia like scoring. Now that can be either really good or really bad. And I was, I was kind of struggling to see where the game was, Ronan. But then you start to see actually you're trying to find this balance between the actions and the goods and then moving your counsellors to a spot that you want them to be at that's all it all started getting more and more interesting Ronan I think it's all about to me it's only 60 minutes long now but I think you need to choose a path fairly early because when you get these bonuses if you get certain advisors that will boost certain actions let's say your wood production gets more your signet rings become more you're trying to go up the noble rank whichever one you choose doing it earlier is cheaper and better and i think that ability to choose a path via two or three things to boost and then use that for the 60 minutes that's where the game comes from it's not in those base actions and the very basic rundles oh no for sure there are lots of things to do but you've got to combine them there's those bonus actions you throw in as well and it's, it's finding the harmony i suppose in in each of your turns trying to harmonize everything together i think that's where the beauty of this game may lie or melee yeah my concern would be it's very simple actions obviously what we don't want that to lead to is just simple decisions which would lead to dull gameplay mm. that i think is where we're going to teeter on whether we think this is a treasure or a trap sean your thoughts on crown of amara is it treasured you or trapped you i tell you what i it, it's brought it's pushed me into treasure road and i started thinking Ooh. it actually was a little bit too simple but i think those simple choices have sort of spin-off choices of their own and that's when it starts getting interesting and i think a good player will be a, a, a poor player at this so yeah it's a treasure for me so for me crown of amara it's reminding me a little bit of world without end but i don't think it's as punishing that as that game and also with the idea that you have to look at what's available to you and then set a strategy and try and follow it. Along the lines of Marco Polo to me, both games I absolutely love. Whether it stands up to that standard, I'm not 100% sure. But it's quick enough for enough in there for me to say, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful for Crown of Amara. So I am going to give it a treasure as well, Sean. That is a double treasure for Crown of Amara. Well, we're off to a good start, Ronan. Let's and keep it going, shall we? Oh, we probably are going to actually. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so my next game is Carpe Diem from Stefan Feld from Alia and Ravensburger. Easy choice. Easy choice. It's a uh, gimme. Two to four players. And obviously it's Stefan Feld. Also, the reviews have started to roll in on this one. 
it's it's been released in certain areas just slightly before Essen, but for us definitely it's a, an Essen game. Uh, the the backstory here is it's Rome, it's one BC, and we're influential patricians trying to improve our city districts and build profitable buildings and beautiful landscapes. So you've got the central board, and on the central board you've got the, it's the heptagon, and a what? A heptagon. It's a seven sided okay, shape. Is that what it is? Yeah, I looked it up. Good, good, <laughs> And it's on each of these side are building tiles. And why building tiles? Because you've got your own personal city district boards that's a six by six grid surrounded by random edges. The central board, again, going back to that, has also got scoring cards, and these are also in the grid. Now the gameplay is consisting of four rounds with seven turns in each. And on the first part of each turn, you're going to move your patrician from one side of the heptagon, Roland to another and claim a tile and you've got to follow lines so basically this gives you two options of other places to go to and then you're going to claim that tile and place it onto your district board on the edge of your district tile has points for finishing buildings in certain squares and you'll also gain a bonus or a resource or points for completing those buildings there's also the opportunity to move up in a banderole track and the band roll track is basically end game points and it gives you first dibs on those scoring cards I mentioned before. So after each player has set, has taken seven tiles, the round is going to end. And now players are going to place their scoring tiles between two scoring cards and attempt to score both of them. If you're not able to, you're going to lose points. And this happens for four rounds and obviously the first person who's amassed the most points at the end is going to win the game of Carpe Diem. Now, Ronan, we've kind of touched on this in a previous episode, that there was design flaws to this. The tile back colours, the building colours, they were very similar and very hard to tell the difference between them. Has that put you off this game at all? Not really. I find that sort of thing to be disappointing. Unless it's actually functional, that would be more of an issue for me. I would say the funny thing with regards to production, and I actually think it's more of a design issue, is... As has been pointed out, with that heptagon in which you go to an area and then you can either go to another one or you can bounce back to the area where you've already been. Yeah, that's called a circle. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen people going absolutely mental on Board Game Geek about it. Why did you uh, not just go left or right? <laughs> and Was that that again? It must have been. <laughs> Dave Loser, obviously. Uh, I've mentioned it before. His video, he goes a bit crazy about it. So... That's a bit of an odd situation in itself. But in terms of the actual physical components, those colour issues, it's irritating. It will get you off on a bit of a wrong foot, but a game can always recover from that. I, mean, yeah. I tell you a game that we are going to talk about in pro one of our earliest shows, because I'm going to make you play it, is Cryptid. And mm. two of the player colours in that are almost identical. That it's, hasn't put me off the game. No, well, so fair enough. It the game irritating. can overcome it. It is irritating, though. But yeah, I, I found from looking at this one from a fire run that there's going to be lots of replayability because obviously everything's modular and you, even your own player boards, the scoring cards, where you place the building tiles. Obviously, all, they're all going to be different every game. And I think there's going to be lots of forward planning in this one. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a failed game, right? So what he's doing is throwing obstacles in front of you in which you always have to forward plan. You would just make an easy plan to the end of the game unless he threw those obstacles in your way. And 
the way he's done it this time around is definitely giving me a Castles of Burgundy feel in that you're taking tiles from the centre, there are various ways in which you can go down for scoring, but what you're doing is competition in the centre for your own solitaire building up tableau and your own solitaire game. What he's done, which is slightly different to Castles of Burgundy, and I think is kind of a trend that's come in, I'm seeing anyway, is the player-driven scoring, where you choose what scores each round for yourself. We're seeing it more, we mentioned it with the Cornerstones in Neon, which we're both very excited about, and that's something that I'm really, I'm happy to see it coming through as well. I th- that really is the most intriguing part of the game to me. Yeah, I think that also is going to drive that player interaction as well, because obviously you're looking to see what other people are building up to. If they're ahead of you in the Banderol track, then... They're going to get first dibs on this. What, what is a banderol? <laughs> According to Dave Loser, it's just a scroll. And why they didn't call it a scroll, he got very angry about. I, I didn't remember that bit. I just wondered <laughs> what a banderol is. It's <laughs> a bit puzzled myself. <laughs> okay. Carpe diem. Sean, this was such a give me choice. I thought it was going to be in your top 10 last week, to be honest with you. I know you're going to give it a treasure. I'm giving it a treasure. We're both excited. <laughs> Speak for me, yes. You're giving it a treasure, don't yeah, you? Yeah, okay, it's a treasure. It's an easy treasure. I've heard people get very excited about it, and I think this might one might actually... Oh, I don't know. Now that I've read up about it, it may be ahead of Thor and Trajanum, which was my second choice in the top ten. I'm not going that far, but okay, all right. <laughs> Let's move on to another very much Euro game coming out. This is Valparaiso. For two to five players, taking around 90 minutes from DLP games from Stefan and Louis Maltz, who are designers of Ido and Rococo, so a little bit of pedigree. Valparaiso was a port that was declared to be free in Chile just before Chile gained its own independence from Spain. Players are playing the roles of merchants in this free port who are looking to trade basically with the village in the hinterland and then ship those goods off to Spain in order to secure achievements and score points. Each player has got an action deck, which will sound familiar for my first game, but they're going to be able to change this one up. And on their turn, they're going to place a base of four cards, but they can increase that to six by building things and paying money. And you're going to put them down in an order face down. Once everyone has chosen their cards for a turn, everyone's then going to reveal them. And on a turn, going one by one, they're going to have to follow the order of the cards that they've programmed for this turn, or they can pay some money to break their order. It's not hugely punishing. What you're actually trying to do on the central board is to hire and move four merchants around Valparaiso, the port itself, and those villages in the hinterland. When you send them to villages, they're going to be able to trigger you to be able to trade for goods, to be able to transfer goods into your warehouse, which will then be able to get over to your ships. You'll be able to earn some money for some goods in the hinterland. And what each village does is going to change around because when it activates, a new tile comes in. So you'll be looking all the time, and most of your merchants are going to reset at the end of each round as well, and you have to pay to move them around again once you have those goods in your warehouse in Valparaiso itself you're going to get them out to your cargo hold and your ships and there's going to be ship areas with certain contracts are waiting for you which are ranked A through to C and they're looking for certain combinations of goods and once you can hand those goods over you'll be able to earn money there's bonus money for going to areas that haven't been taken for a long time if you're trying to get through the ranks too quickly there's sort of a slowdown while the people earn money either way you're looking to earn money other things you can do uh, are to build extra houses in Valparaiso, which will get you income and will get you uh, the money and will get you the extra slots of cards to be able to play. And as you're accruing these VP for this trading all the time, this circular trade, once someone gets over 18 VP, then they are going to trigger the end of the game and everyone's going to score up for money they've got and find the goods they can do and generally how efficiently they've run their trading empire. Sean, 
my first question to you is there are three basic goods you're taking them from one spot you put them in your house put them in your ship and you're getting rid of them from the most way sometimes they shuffle between villages but shuffling is my operative word is this just a cube shuffler uh, it doesn't really sort of expand the imagination or sort of tickle the imagination it feels like there's lots of things that we've seen before the thing that I think is going to make or break this game for me is the, the pro- programmable, get that word out, card selection. So you, you set up your cards and you play them in that order. Now, for me, that's a really hit and miss mechanism in games because I, I hate the ones that, that people can mess with too much and you end up doing nothing. But then I hate the ones that are just bog standard and you're not really affected by the other players. So it's where that comes in on that scale for me. Yeah, it looked like you're going to be racing to get to certain markets to beat people there for certain deals, or you're be racing to certain ships. My issue with it was that the variety in what those markets are, even if someone beats you to it, wasn't that fantastic. And you can build houses in those villages, which always, when you go basically go to an area where someone else has got a merchant, it costs you more to do something. But you can build a house which becomes like a custom house or a marketplace, depends what's going on there. And therefore, people will always have to pay you whenever they're doing things. So actually, that movement becomes more static as the game goes on. And uh, they've added this this real-time possibility in planning, but slightly like Galaxy Trucker, slightly, in that you can have a sand timer and when everyone plans out their cards and then you flip over the timer, everyone else has then got 60 seconds to finish doing it. Well, six seconds and then you count, I think 65 seconds because you count five, four, three, two, one to give them a chance, which I think is actually a very sensible way of dealing with a sand timer rather than having everyone had to watch it. But that's completely an aside. I was wondering whether they put that real time thing into the card to make it more exciting because I'm struggling to find the fun. Yeah, and I was also a little bit worried about the achievement cards. They they either seemed very basic and not balanced. There's one that just take ten money. It's not really an achievement. I'll just do that. Thank you. <laughs> it, it, they didn't. If they... I offered you a tenner now, though, would you feel like you achieved it? <laughs> I would. I would have achieved. You're getting all judgy on taking money. <laughs> yeah, I think there's plenty of things to do on this one, Rona. But whether they all combine to make it an interesting game, or I'm struggling with this one, Ronan. We're supposed to like disguise how we're going on Treasure or Trap. <laughs> and no. We were clearly Treasure Carpe Diem. And I actually thought you were really excited for Valparaiso. I was expecting to get a bit of bite back from my negativity here. I was, because I do like a, a fairly dry Euro, but I'm just, I have concerns about whether this one all pulls together to just be... I don't want to say the word functional, because I think it will be functional, but to be interesting and functional at the same time. So... I'm right on the fence with this one, and I think I'm going to slip off the fence just into trap country. Well, it wasn't making me very excited, and then it's done one of the things which, especially at this time of year, drives me crazy. The The rule book. Typos, poor grammar, clearly not proofread by someone whose English is good enough and I don't know where all the typos come in but there's dozens of them so that I mean that was just one small straw after the straws that broke the camel's back I went trap on Valparaiso I can't see the fun will I try it sure I'm not dismissing it totally but it's gonna have to convince me so that's a double trap 
for Valparaiso. Mm. I'm surprised because we were both help, hopeful for that one, weren't we? We were, we were, and I'm sure we'll give it a go when we get to Essen and be wrong as normal. And my next game is Architectura. This one's designed by Pavel Atamanchuk and from Hobby World, playing two to four players. So, what are we in Architectura? We're architects. There you go. Vying to make the most significant contribution to a magnificent city. So it's a card game. They are going to be city block cards laid in a row from one to eight in the centre of the table. And each player's basically got a hand of 12 building cards. The gameplay starts with each player placing one building card at a time, either to the right of an already placed card or to start a new row below a place card on a or on a destroyed building because you can destroy buildings in this cards have a base value which is at the top and amended values on each side and they may also have a power or an end game scoring when a card is placed you have to check the value against the one to the left if your card placed is two times higher than that then the, the card to the left is destroyed if it's one times higher then the left card is reduced in value so it's Want as Ronan would say, twisted, spun, whatever you. If your card is lower, then you increase the card to the left by rotating it. Players can protect their buildings, and at the end of the game, when nobody can play a card, the game is going to be over. You're going to count your points on the table for your remaining buildings for each player, and that player who has the most is going to be the winner. Architectura, Ronan. I found it very easy on the eye. But did it live up to that initial burst of beauty? Beauty? Big word. I will say that, yes, I think it looks very nice. I really love the level of interaction that they've put in with regards to when you lay a card down, that's not it done, and it's not set in stone. Everything reacts to everything, and there are powers, and obviously you can, you can want them this way or that way to make them more or less powerful. So once you play a card and effect a tile down, you're not just going, that's it, that's done, I forget about it. You're constantly kind of worried about it and concerned about it and looking to protect it and looking to put a blocker in place, but you can't put too many blockers because you can't have three of your, your own colour in a row. That has got me interested because what it does is it gives you something to watch on everyone else's turn and feel like you're always engaged where everyone places a card always affects other players. Yeah, that in itself I think is quite interesting but I think where the game is going to sort of really take interest for me is on how clever the actual powers are on the cards are how are they are they sort of zero sum quite easy to to breed and play or do they have sort of are they multifaceted and affect that and then that and then that and loads of things start twisting so that's that's what i want to see is how how clever those cards are i want to see the level of chaos they create <laughs> to make sure that it's not just completely random crazy stuff happens and you're not able to plan i mean actually that doesn't sound too awful <laughs> if that's the way they choose to go that it is crazy and every card gets down it's funny and you're just trying to handle it that way because you know what cards everyone else has because you always have the same deck as each other yeah 
obviously like I said it's not too fiddly that every time a card gets played you're not then twisting four other cards and it becomes a, bit, a little yeah, bit yeah I've actually written that down bro, and I've actually it, I, for me it seems a little bit fiddly because there's that kind of rule is it's one more two more and then they're twisting things round and yeah. I like the idea though that, that it's just a twist of the card and you're yeah. not constantly putting tokens on or putting cubes and removing cubes and all that I think there are worse ways they definitely could have done it I think this is quite a clever solution if you're determined that's your mechanism and sure why not I like it I think this is a good solution to keeping track of that mechanism. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree with that totally. For me personally, for my tastes, I'm a little bit worried that it might be too combative, but it won't affect whether I call this a treasure or a trap. It certainly wouldn't be putting me off. Uh, <laughs> one thing I do like is that they've added replayability. I think it would be very easy for them to just package this and go, there's your game, and maybe after four or five games you've seen everything in there. The fact that they've got lots of those advanced cards, but they haven't just chucked them in. They've thought about it, and you have to swap a 7 for a 7 and a 3 for a 3, and it's controlled how many you do swap in and out, and then you have to tell everyone what you've put in. It sounds like there's a level of learning the game, but it's been nicely progressed, and, and they've thought about it, and it's not in a completely mad way. Little concerns about the two-player game because the the three-in-a-row rule doesn't affect the two-player game. So you actually can place as many as you want in a row. So you might have just two rows of two different colours. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure often that would happen because you're only then allowed two rows. You're either allowed as many yeah, rows as players. True, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that you mess with each other a little bit. But like quite a few of these games, is it going to be best two-player for an interactive tile layout? I don't know. You'd find that out for me and let me know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Architecture, I, I had flagged it up on my first sweep through. I was going to go back and have a look at it. Whenever I got round to that was in doubt. You've pulled it in for this. And Sean, this is, I think, a treasure. Have we ever been a whole episode when we've completely mirrored each other? No, but apparently we're carrying along that path. Yeah, the artwork drew me in, and to be honest, the the interesting gameplay and that the puzzle to solve and the interaction in the game sort of kept me kept me going. And I'm going to call this one a treasure. That's Architectura. Lovely, my last game of this half there's plenty more to come though don't worry is the forgotten city it's for two to four players around 90 minutes from two plus games designed by ying tan lu who designs the sublime falling coin in which you have a cards and the coin is going to drop from them and you're trying to let it drop too far i loved it it, it wasn't much of a game but i loved it anyway each of the players is woken up in a city in a giant forest and they have been found by some arcane helpers who are going to assist the players to fight off nightmares and imprint their memories by manifesting miracles of enlightenment. The game is played on a modular board and on those modular pieces there are terrain hexes of various different terrains. On a player's turn, they're going to start from where their leader is and then they're going to place four workers and whenever you place a worker, it's going to be on a hex on the board and it must be linked to your leader or workers you've played previously on the round. One of the basic actions each work you can do when you place them is just to excavate resources matching the terrain. It'll be one or two depending upon what's marked on that terrain piece. Also, at the beginning of each round, you're going to do a drafting of monuments which require resources to build. And the players can place a worker in order to build a monument on the corresponding type of terrain that the monument wants to go on. And monuments will boost production and they're going to give you... Your production is always going to be in gold, defence and inspiration, which will help you score VP. You can also activate monuments on the board with your workers. They could be yours or someone else's, but you'll give them VP for that. And that's then going to give you that bonus in gold, defense, inspirational VP that the monument gives already to its owner. 
What are you going to spend these things for? Well, you can spend inspiration to gain miracles, which will give you individual boosts to your actions. You're going to spend your gold in order to take lots of actions, and you're going to spend your defense in order to fight terrain-specific nightmares, which are going to come up over the course of the game, in that a nightmare will flip over and it's going to attack every worker that's, let's say, on forest. And then it will go around in turn order and you can use your defence to fight off, depending on how many workers you have on forest spaces, if that's the specific nightmare. And when you do this, you're going to gain VP and the person who actually does the killing blow to nightmare is going to gain VP. At the end of each round, you're going to reset your leader to either where it is already or to one of the four spaces your workers were on. And then you're going to go again. You're going to draft monuments. You're going to place your workers out. You're going to be building monuments. You're going to be extracting resources, attempting to build up your production again in this defense and the inspiration which allows you to get miracles and all the rest of it. It's going to be played out over six rounds. And at the end, whoever has gained the most VP is going to be the winner of the Forgotten City. Sean, another tired old theme. Oh man, that theme is crazy. <laughs> I knew you were going. I just led you into it. I, I knew it. that's what you were going to go. I hate the theme so much, right? And I hate it. How can you hate it? It's lovely. Oh, it's, it's so worthy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's that time of night, is it? It's that time of night. I actually found the theming made it a little bit difficult for me to understand and get through the rule book because I kept having to what so what's inspiration, what's this again, what's that again? And it, they stayed on theme the whole way through, which is cool. I kept having to flick back and sort of think what does that correspond to and what does that correspond to and yeah. Just a bit difficult to, to learn. You want the thing to, to be that hanger, don't you? It kind of pulls everything together and you go, okay, I know why I'm doing stuff. This waking up in the city in a grove and these suddenly these arcane helpers are going to help you. <laughs> okay, but let's move on to an area of strength. Surely, surely you think it looks bright and colourful and there's great Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's very pretty in a very sort of psychedelic, far-out dude way. It has definitely, i am use one of my words, I've been trying to avoid because you kept is mocking it, me it, so is much. Is it vibrant? No, it's striking. Striking. <laughs> I failed in Sean Bingo. There you go. Yes, it is. It, I think it will certainly catch a lot of eyes in the halls at Essen. I think so too, yeah. And I'm going to throw another thing at you because I know that you like a game of Istanbul and it's certainly reminiscent of that in that you're creating this worker chain. It doesn't, I know it doesn't work exactly the same way, but that's what it reminded me of, that once you start off in a direction, you're going to be following along there and each one... It kind of gives you more options, but it also kind of limits your options. Actually, you know what? You've you slightly endeared it to me a little bit more. I hadn't really put that sort of link in. And yeah, now that you think, now that I think about it, now that you've said it, yeah, I can see aspects of Istanbul in there for sure, yeah. For me, the theme did get between me and learning the mechanisms of the game and learning why things were doing certain things and how it got together. There is already a thread up on BGG with about seven or eight rules questions just for clarifications and things that actually aren't mentioned in the rule book, which are rules. For example, it looks like you always get one resource from a hex, but in some cases you get two or how exactly nightmares are dealt with or in what order you fight them and how you score points. And these are quite important things. And there's a lot of time spent with nice 
diagrams, which is great and, and explanations, but not all the rules are in the rule book. I've written down here, and uh, from afar, I'm not sure if it's going to work because there, there were sort of little gaps in there that I wasn't really sure about. Having read the rule book a couple of times, I was just thinking, well, how does that work? And how does that work? I think with the nightmares, I kind of grasp it. So you, you know where they're coming at the start of the round. So you can sort of prepare for them and, and get workers to those spaces to defend those spaces. I, I kind of get that, but... Or, actually, you can avoid them. If you keep your workers off that terrain, you won't get affected by the nightmares. So it mm. depends on whether you've gone for a defence strategy or not. Yeah, uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. So uh, my concern, I mean, I think what it screams to me is there's going to be a second edition rulebook. There has to be, because once you miss rules out... They might be clear in your head. They might be clear in the original rule book. They're not in these rules. So you've got to get them in there somehow. And it's not my first tusslings with a second edition rule book this week, Sean, anyway. My, my, my main concern was it's a 90-minute game, not a 45-minute game. And once I got through all that sort of difficulty, I went, this is a fairly simple game. I think we use the term bog stand Euro quite a lot, but I think this is built up to be something wondrous almost but yeah when you when you chip it away chip all that color and vibrance they yeah, got it in for you um away from it then i think yeah i think you how i left with quite a simple game and the fact that in that simple game rules have been left out is a little bit worrying so for me because of those issues because i wasn't really feeling it from afar i am gonna say it's a trap running I'm very fancy on this one. Very fancy. <laughs> there, there's good and there's bad. I like. It looks like you're going your own thing. You're getting your production. Uh, I think I'm going to tipple gently one inch to the side of treasure. Ooh. I think. There we go. Finally, we've got we've got opposing views. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure this one is alive. <laughs> And I put you onto this game. <laughs> Go on, hit us. This is one of the ones that Ronan loves when I just pull out one of these randoms. It's Farmer Olaf, designed by Marcin Pietkiewicz, and it's self-published, and it's two to four players. So it's a game about farming, and, well, what seems to be his main strategy is it comes in a very unique box that allows you to play without a table. So, cards have fields, workers, animals, pens, and more on them. And each game player starts with four of these cards. And they're going to get more cards each turn. Now, they can gather them into sets. And what you're trying to do with the sets is you're trying to gain goods. So, for instance, if you have boars and you have forage and you have a boar pen, then you're going to get ham, and ham is going to score you points. You can enter into completely open trading to get what you want to sort of build those sets up at any stage during your turn you can say i'll give you three of these cards you give me one of yours blah 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 and that can happen throughout the game for some reason you have dwarf workers to clean your pens and you can do things like shearing alpacas aren't you all dwarfs you you might you, well, you certainly got dwarf workers I think you're all dwarfs, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you for sure. So we're all dwarfs or something. <laughs> uh, and 
yeah, as I said, the reward cards are, are ham, and you're going to score points for these reward cards. And when the cards run out, the person who has the most points wins. And as I said, Ronan, you have to scroll through. It was it was a failed Kickstarter, and you have to scroll through a good two thirds of that Kickstarter page about how good the box is before you get to gameplay. And I think that tells a tale. I read <laughs> on Board Game Geek. I didn't look at the Kickstarter page first of all. I didn't think we were being geek. And there was a comment on there saying, is this dude trying to sell a box or a game? Yeah, and well. I was puzzled until I looked at the Kickstarter page. I was like, oh, okay. In fairness, it does look like it's quite a clever box system in that you don't need a table. You can just carry this box around and the cards sort of go into different drawers in it and it sorts itself out. So Yeah, and they slant upwards so nothing falls out. Yeah, it's very, yeah. very clever. It's did supposed you just to, be able to clip it to a clip it to a belt, Sean. Yeah, did you watch the video? I watched a video of people like playing it in the car and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> in the airport and yeah. walking along the street and all manner of cues were being it was being played in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think that whole thing around the Kickstarter in some of his comments on BGG, and he's been very open, he seems like a nice guy, that I'm not sure he's got that much industry knowledge. And one of the things that people have been clamouring for during the Kickstarter and now, because he is going to have Essen for sale, was we need a rule book. And he's been saying, he gave a list of priorities and there was about eight things, and the rule book is right down the bottom. I don't need a rule book. But we do... Like, you might not know the rules, but we don't. You're going to Essen amongst all these games, self-published, guaranteed to be over in Hall 8. you got to at least get a rule book out, man. Tell us how it plays. What we do know about it is, and I know lots of people are dismissing it as a kid's game because he's saying you can play it from 5+. plus. Again, I'm not sure whether that's him just sort of not getting his marketing right because... The other thing he's saying with uh, his left hand saying five plus, his right hand saying there's depth in this, and it's all about open trading. And you can make any kind of a deal with each other. You can say, Look, I need your dwarf workers to clean up my stables now because I need this fertilizer right now. But what I'll do is when I get this fertilizer in two turns' time, I'll give you the and it's all allowable and it's all binding. And he's what he's saying is if you can find your niche amongst the players of, oh, this is what I do, this is the service I provide, and make good deals with them, you'll actually end up winning the game. That's what sounds interesting to me. For sure. I yeah. just can't get any more information about that. <laughs> I watched the actual gameplay video that he's actually had on the Kickstarter's page right at the bottom with him and his family playing a three player game. Mm-hmm. And it was just monotonous until they started trading. It was like, okay, here's your first four cards. Here's another card. Do you want to do anything? No, not yet. Here's another card. Do you want to do anything? No, not yet. Do you want, Here's another card. Do you want to do anything? Actually, yeah, I've got enough to make ham. Oh, great. And then, as the game, like about halfway through, they started trading. And it was like, okay, that now is quite interesting because he's desperate for that. They know he's desperate for it. And they're trying to make him pay for it through the nose. And he knows that they're doing that. And yeah, that was starting to get quite interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> good. So there's some promise there. There's just too many questions at the moment, and as if we come into it, have looking at all these games, it is off-putting because either he doesn't know the lessons that the previous publishers have learned, or he's determined to ignore them. Either way, whatever it is, it's fine because he's got a good idea and he's got a first attempt, and he wanted it to go on this unique idea that you can carry it anywhere and play it. And it may well work like that. And it's something that I will go and have a look at at some point. 
But at the moment, I have to put it down as a trap because I just have nothing else to go on. Yeah, it's it's a trap. It's a very attractive trap. I really like the artwork, the simplicity of it, and the innovation behind the box. I, I like all of it, but the game just seems really, really dull without that trading. And yeah, I don't know how much the trading can recover it. So yeah, it's, it's a definite trap for me. I will go over and, and check it out. And I really don't hope that he does well, because he, as Ronan said, he does seem like a really nice guy. And that's Farmer Olaf. And... That's the end of our first half, and we will catch you for another six treasure hunts after the break. Sean, we're going to go from short card game to short card game in a mere beat of a wings, because our next game is Mayfly. Two to four players, taking around 20 to 30 minutes to play. The publisher is I Cannot Live By Myself, and the designer is Kayu Takai. This is a cooperative game in which the players are helping to grow a mayfly from a larva to adulthood and trying to find them the perfect partner to breed with. There are two phases to the game. The first phase is the larva phase. In this phase, the mayfly itself has got a certain stomach capacity and players are going to play food cards from their hands face down and there'll always be a queue of two. Once there's two played, however, on your turn, you're going to take the first face down card and you're going to turn it over and see how much food is on there. And if there's capacity within the lava to feed it, it will get fed up and boost and that card will go into its stomach and be available to you in the second half. If it can't feed off that card, that card gets discarded and that will then may well then be a problem to you later on. Then once you've fed that card into the Mayfly and you literally put it through a slot in the box, into the box, so it looks like it's going inside the Mayfly because the game is very much interactive with the box, you then play a card face down from your hand to become the second card in the queue. And in that way, we're going to go round and round. There are molting cards available, and when a molting card is played, it's going to increase the appetite and the capacity of our mayfly as the larva grows. We're going to go all the way through the food deck, and the mayfly is going to need to eat at certain times. And as long as there's enough food in there, that's fine. However, if there's not enough food for the mayfly, it may starve. In the second half, that box is going to flip over, and we're now going to get an adult mayfly. And it's going to have a certain amount of food in its stomach that we fed it to by balancing its needs and how much it eats and whether it's going to be too hungry and not trying to feed it too much. And that's its strength because adult mayflies can't eat, their mouth are completely withered away, and it's going to face four trials before it can get to its partner. You flip over the trial and you decide whether to escape it or to challenge it. If you escape it, it's going to cost you one of your strength and then you move on and you flip over another one anyway, so you're always going to have to face four. If you choose to face the challenge of the trial, there will be hearts on it, and maybe also it might get more hearts. It might say to flip over one of the food cards that you wasted in the first phase, wasted the hearts on there, and they might come back to bite you. Players are going to go around the table playing cards from their hand, and the cards that you have in your hand are the ones you are able to feed the mayfly during the larva phase. They get shuffled up and handed out. So while you're feeding the larva and building its strength, you're looking to get heart cards into its stomach as well, knowing you'll be using those to face these challenges later on. Every time you do play a card with hearts to try and match the strength of the trial, you're going to use one of the strength on the mayfly. If the mayfly has not got enough strength for you to play the cards to defeat the hearts on all of the trials the adult mayfly has died and it doesn't get to breed 
If you do manage to help it survive all the way through, depending upon what food you've actually used to defeat the trials, the Mayfly will get to mate with one of four different partners and there are four different endings to the game on how successful you have been. Sean, an unusual cooperative small card game coming from Japan. Your thoughts on Mayfly? My first thoughts were, what in the name of anything have you put me through looking at this? We've got to keep feeding a mayfly while it grows bigger and then help it to go and mate. I was like, what? He's, he's lost the plot. He's In fine. fairness, it reminds me of looking after you when you were younger. <laughs> All right, I'm younger and that story didn't quite work, but you know what I'm saying. Jack and ape. Anyway, right, so we're searching this one. The first thing I did, Ronan, was watch a video by the designer and his friends, and it was in Japanese but with English subtitles. So I was watching the first half as they were feeding the mayfly to, to let it get bigger and bigger and sort of grow into a fully-fledged mayfly. I, that was when I was sure that you had actually gone mad because I was like, there's no game here. All they've got to do is guess how many empty spaces are going to be in the mayfly's belly, I suppose, and make sure they play a card that's going to fill it up or not overfill it so it can eat and the right type of food and i was like that's not a game that's just guessing how many cards are in two two in front of you and then you flip to the adult mayfly side and then it all dawned on me oh so hang on they are now struggling because they used up so many hearts making sure that the mayfly had exactly the right amount of food and now they, they're facing these, like there was a toad, there was a bird that had like nine hearts and they were really struggling to match those nine hearts and beat them with the cards they had left and the cards that they had wasted obviously can add to their misery as well by adding more hearts so it all became clear Ronan and yeah I quite like the look of it. Well, for starters, I'm shocked that I managed to turn you around. I knew what your first reaction would be to choosing this. I was giggling when I put it on the list. I think it's definitely one of those experiential games that uh, possibly we see more S than we do at other times of the year because they come from other parts of the world where people have different design um, sensibilities. And I think the whole point of this game is that you're supposed to be feeling the struggles of the Mayfly and you're supposed to feel like how tough this existence is and that the things that happen when you're a larva can go back to haunt you as an adult. And I think there's probably a story there, Sean. And I think that that theme is pretty amazing. I think it is once you get down to it. And I haven't really got a lot more to say on this one, Ronan. I literally tell you my notes. The first part is what the hell? The second part is... That's language for start. <laughs> second part is, it seems to rely on a lot of guesswork. And the third part is, ah, second half makes much more sense now. I like it. <laughs> what about the aesthetic of it? I think it's very it's very basic. I, th- I do quite like actually putting the cards into the Mayfly itself, or the, the food cards. I think it's, it's interesting. It keeps it very compact. It's a game you could play almost anywhere. Not quite Farmer Olaf standards. You couldn't clip it to your belt. Couldn't clip it to your belt. That's the, that's the main thing. <laughs> and, yeah, Ronan, I'm just going to go out and I say, you, you found me a treasure that I didn't think I'd ever find. So it's a treasure. I think I'm starting to turn you to some of these weirder ones. I'm interested to see how these treasure hunts go, see how weird I can take you to turn these. I will say I've got one reservation in that I'm not sure how many plays you're going to get out of it. 
because yeah, it, it, it's going to be fairly similar each time you play. But for what it is, for it being unique, for the fact that it's a co-op, for the theme, all the rest of it, it's definitely a treasure for me. And while I'm shocked that it got a double treasure from Sean, I am very pleasantly shocked. There you go. Okay, so moving on now, my next game is Fertility. And it's from Cyril Leroy and Catch Up Games, playing two to four players. Players in this are no marks, don't know what that is, but it sounds important, in ancient Egypt. And the pharaoh has put us in charge of a metropolis and its surrounding region, and we must earn the most money and glory for the pharaoh. So you have a central board representing the region, and you have personal boards, which are your own personal metropolis and your areas. You have a stack of valley tiles depicting various illustrations showing the gathering of two on each tile of, of the four resources in the game. On a turn, you're going to place those valley tiles so adjacent sides match already placed tiles. When the sides do match, you're going to be able to collect those resources. If you cover symbols on the board matching the resources, you're going to get those resources too. And if you build next to the grain or wheat gatherers that are on the board already, then you can move your granary marker up on the track. If you ever enclose a square, an empty square, you get to place a monument there, which is going to help you with end of game scoring. So why are we collecting those resources? Well, they are to place on shops on your personal board, and this is solely to score points at the game end. You're going to add more of these shops or neighbourhoods to increase your player board, so you can make your own sort of neighbourhood, build it up, and once the resources are placed, they are stuck there forever. When the valley tiles run out, the game is over, and you're going to score points for, again, the shops in your player area, whether you've gathered goods, and there's also monument pictures depicted on there, and you get sets of them together to score points. You're going to score points for the monuments that you've actually built on the board by enclosing that space, as I mentioned earlier. And you're going to score points for going up on your granary track. So very much a tile layer with a little bit of a difference and a little bit of an economy engine going Ronan what are your thoughts on fertility well the thing that first of all definitely attracts me to it is that obviously I love clever tile laying games and this appears to give you the options to make a tile laying game above the obvious. It's easy to make an, an, an obvious tile laying game. And I think, thankfully, they've built more than that into it. Probably most importantly is the fact that you set your scoring ahead, as in, you know, you have to get those tiles and then you set yourself up for certain resources and you're choosing your own tiles from a choice so you're not just top decking. But each turn in itself is immediate and there's no keeping those unassigned resources. So... I'm liking that balance between planning ahead but having to be absolutely immediate in the things you do so that it's not too bogged down. You've got to have, as you said, that, that plan in mind. You've got to be going for certain things depending on what you've got and what sort of neighbourhoods you've brought in and what resources they need. You've got to be looking to try and push your way towards them and getting as many of those into your, into your sort of tableau as possible. What I also like, Ronan, is that Again, I, I go on about it all the time, but you're building your own thing as well. You're building in the central, everyone's creating that sort of terrain in the centre, but you're also building your own sort of player area as well, and that, that's going to be unique to you by, at the end of the game. I hear you, 
but I don't feel you. Because <laughs> in terms of building up something in front of me for my own, I want to have a bit of an investment in it and, and a bit of strategy and a bit of long-term. The thing you're building your own is just those scoring tiles, and you're just going to fill them up and move on, and then they just become numbers. I'm not sure I'm feeling that investment in my own thing that you're that you're getting at there. But I, I, I like the fact that you, you can know what tiles you've got available to you. So and then you can choose another neighbourhood tile to come in that that matches what you're going for already. So you're you're kind of driving your own personal sort of mission forward. I also look at that as being like a personal thing. I think the player boards aren't as pretty as we, we've already had a discussion on this, haven't we, Roland? You don't think that it looks that pretty, do you? Mm, I think it's pretty. Now that's that's not true. So I think it's pretty. It's just that you know how I like clean lines and very clean area to play in. And the decision they've made is to go for aesthetic and make it pretty rather than for that cleanness. Now, obviously, it's a very fine line to tread, and my opinion on it is it shouldn't be universal. Just for me, it looks a little busy to my eye. I would have preferred it cleaner, but I, you know, I'm guessing for you, you prefer it like this. Yeah, I do. I, I like. I really like the central board how that builds up. I think by the end of the game, that's going to look really nice. Uh, I think actually the player boards themselves are quite clean and structured and and quite mm, workable. There's a lot perfect. of icons on those scoring things where it could be this or that, or one of those for two points, or one of these or one of those to get you one of these, which is all good and functional. But it's not giving me the clean lines that I like to look at, you know? I'm just I'm just a boring person. I just like things this way, I think. <laughs> the one other slight hesitation I'd have on it is that real cracking tile laying games that I really love. I'm thinking maybe like Basilica or something like that is real tight tile laying games where you're really agonising over what you put down because it will open up opportunities to other people. And I'm not sure it's got that real crunchy tightness the interest comes in other areas and again it's kind of a personal thing but it didn't feel that tight on the main board yeah yeah I was, when i was listening to you there i was actually going to say yeah i think it's it's quite loose on the board itself and you're not going to really struggle to put a tile down it's just maximizing maybe putting that tile down and as i said before trying to get it to match what you've already got on your board i think that's where the crunchiness will come in which way are you going down with this one Ronan? at the end of the day Despite the fact there's a couple of choices there that might not be to my personal taste, I still think that what it's going to be is a clever tile layer. I mentioned it earlier in the episode, the fact that you're driving your own scoring. I love that. I love you can take control. I think it's going to be interactive enough. Whether it's tight enough, whether you can do things like lay tiles to block other people, have a look over and they go, oh, you're desperate for that. I'm going to stop you getting it. I'm not sure, but I'm definitely going to lean down on the side of a treasure. So this is 100% a treasure for me. I really like the look of this one. I love a tile layer, but it's giving me something I didn't even think I, I knew I wanted, really, is that it add that economy into that tile layer and it add that personalization and personal goals into that tile laying and not just sort of top decking and making the most of it. So, yeah, fertility for me is a big treasure. Nice. A big treasure. You're going hard treasure treasure there, right? I'm going hard. I look forward to playing your copy then. (laughs) (laughs) My fifth game of this episode is Jewel Asaur Island for two players taking 45 minutes from Pandasaurus designed by Ian Moss. 
Dualosaur Island is a two-player drafting game in the Dinosaur Island line. Dinosaur Island being the multiplayer game where you're trying to build your own dinosaur theme park. Well, they've taken that theme with the same company and they've made a two-player only version. In this one, your rival CEOs running rival dinosaur theme parks. Each round, players are going to earn coins and be able to draw park cards based on what park attractions they've built. Then the first player is going to draw three specialist cards and roll five dice. They're going to choose two of the three specialists to place available for a draft. And they're also going to place those five dice as they've been rolled next to bonus modifiers, which will add to the DNA that's on there. DNA being the basic currency which you use to build different dinosaurs. They're going to put multipliers on there. They're going to give you extra cash or extra visitors. And you place the dice in slots where these multipliers have already been put down. And cash is obviously going to help you do things. A visitor basically equals VP at the end of the game. Then the other player starts and they're going to take turns drafting until six of those seven things have been taken. And that last thing is then going to add to the threat against the player's parks looking to kill off their visitors. Then players can build park cards that they drew at the start of the turn from their hands and there's two sides of them. And you can use DNA you've collected and stored to build dinosaurs to add to your park or coins for attractions. You're also going to spend money to increase your security given that that threat is growing every time you put dinosaurs into your park and also every time that there's something left over from the draft. You're going to have a maximum of three specialists available to you but you can swap them in and out from those you've drafted and you're going to use their special powers which will help you out. Then each player is going to check their threat and if they haven't got their security above the correct level then some visitors will be eaten excitement levels in the park for the dinosaurs you've built or the different attractions is going to bring in visitors and then players get to choose a little bonus at the end of each round but that's going to start with the player who is currently behind in the standings Depending upon how long you want the game to be when one player gets to a certain visitor or vp level that's going to trigger the end of the game and then players are going to get bonuses for their dinosaurs, for their attractions, add those to the visitors they managed to gather throughout the course of the game. And we're going to have one winner in this two-player drafting game. Sean, your thoughts on Jordasaur Island? Well, Ronan, let's just address the elephant in the room. Or is, is it a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a powerfully ugly game. Well, now... dinosaur island i thought was powerfully ugly for some reason even though it's the same sort of maybe because there's fewer components i didn't mind it in jawlosaur island it was less overwhelming to my senses maniac did dinosaur island kidnap you so you've now got stockholm syndrome (laughs) i'm very little interest in dinosaur island i have to tell you i know some people say it's good but and plays well and all the rest of it. It's just—it's never enticed me. This brought me in for different reasons. It wasn't just the theme. But, yeah, you're hooked up on the looks that, that bad? Not really, no, because Dinosaur Island, obviously very similar looks, I feel, that had me really split down the middle. I saw things I really loved. I loved the theme. I loved some of like, the dice rolling, etc. I loved some of the, the mechanisms within the game and the thought behind the game. But people, some people told me things about the game that maybe didn't work. And I hated the look of it. And it just split me down the middle. And I never ended up getting it. But this one, again, it's the same theme. And it's a trimmed down version, isn't it? But part of my problem with Dinosaur Island itself was 
I never felt like there was enough gameplay to sustain several two, two and a half hour long games of it. Hmm. It was very basic. You're collecting DNA, building your dinosaurs, getting on with it. In this, you're doing exactly the same thing, but it's the direct drafting, the fact that it's got... It's not exactly I split, you choose, but it's along that that way. The fact that you're assigning the dice to the multipliers, you know the other person gets to choose first, you don't want to make it too juicy, but you want to do something that you want. That exactly direct level, and the fact it's only 45 minutes, I'm feeling like I'm getting a better Dinosaur Island experience in a shorter package. Yeah, yeah, and there's no no downtime in the game, and multi-use cards for a Ronin are always something that I, I'm quite eager to see how the, how they work, and they're always interesting to me. So you've got, always got those couple of choices, no matter what else the game is doing. See, it does a lot of things right, and actually, in terms of the whole thing, to me, including graphically, including in terms of mechanisms, it looks cleaner. They've pared away the excess for me of Dinosaur Island and left a strong fossil record skeleton. I, don't, I couldn't make that work. <laughs> well done. Good attempt. Yeah, so for me, I was steering away from this one, Ronan, because a lot of people say, oh, well, if you like Dinosaur Island, you'll love Dinosaur Island. Uh, it's just a two-player version of it, and I kind of steered away because of the way I kind of fell on Dinosaur Island. So I'm glad you brought it back to my attention because it's now a treasure, Ronan. I really want to give this one a try, in essence. Wow, I'm turning you left, right, and centre here. You are. It's spinning me. (laughs) Right round, baby? Yeah, well, there you go. Like a record player? (laughs) No, no, maybe not quite. Okay, right, good. Well, you can hear the enthusiasm in me, and my enthusiasm is all for the mechanism. It's all for that drafting system. It's all for the direct, like, if you take it, I won't get it, the zero-sum game. I love that two-player drafting has come along and we're getting now places where they work very well and i am very very hopeful for jillisaw island i hope it kind of got buried amongst the kickstarter for the expansion and the reprint of dinosaur island but then that made two million dollars so i'm pretty sure a lot of people have heard of jillisaw island and i hope that it gets some table present it doesn't get completely swamped by big brother and it does get some attention because jillisaw island is a definite treasure for me very good. Okay, another agreement. So let's see if we, this one is. This one is Fuji, coming from Fjölandspieler and Maldito Games, designed by Wolfgang Warsh, playing two to four players. Players in this are a group of adventurers, and they are en route to Mount Fuji in Japan. But as we near the volcano, it erupts. Now we must flee for our lives to the safety of a nearby village. This is a cooperative game played with dice and cards. So the cards are laid out as per a scenario card. It's going to tell you exactly what order to lay them out and what pattern to lay them out. And each of the players has a unique skill. They're a character, really, with a unique skill. The cards on the table depict the volcano and the various locations to traverse in order to escape the deadly lava flow. The idea is to get everyone to safety and you're going to win the game. On a turn, you're all going to roll dice and they're going to be stay behind your screens. Then you're going to decide where you would like to move to. Now, each card that you want to move to has an entry requirement. So it might be one red dice, a six and a four to get into a particular location. You're going to place a destination marker so everyone knows where you want to go. And then you all get a chance to re-roll your dice if you want to. Once you've done that and you've chosen, you reveal your dice to everyone. 
You can use equipment cards in the game. These are going to give you one-off bonus powers, and this is the chance to do that. And then you must move. Now, you need to match the requirement on the card, but also you have to have more pips on your dice than either of your neighbours have, or you can't move. So that's where the cooperation comes in. As I said, you try to get everyone to safety. If you do, you win. If you don't, the volcano wins and you get melted, I suppose. And that's Fuji, Ronan. Well, well, let me say to you, Mr. Rice, this is a forbidden volcano in all the <laughs> name. I literally wrote down forbidden desert. Well, it's not in a desert, so forbidden volcano surely works. Okay, well, okay, it? fair enough. Very reminiscent of the Forbidden series. For sure, for sure. Feels like it could just slip right in there, probably earlier on than the complications of Forbidden Sky. But anyway, so. Uh, that will probably give people a feel for what Fuji's like. You're going to know if we've been on Forbidden Desert, probably. Mm-hmm. It is very, very co-op. And you are relying on others even more than usual in a cooperative game in that they have to be listening to you. They have to pay attention to where you've put that destination marker. They have to be aware like what they need to not have on their dice to allow you to make your move. You have to be aware of whose moves are absolutely crucial. So you might have to sacrifice your own because someone else needs to do it. It's going to be absolutely hinge on how the team plays together. Yeah, and crucial to that for me is the role or the skills that you have as your individual sort of person in the game, they don't seem really different enough or as balanced as, as say, a Forbidden Desert. So for me, it's gonna those equipment cards are now going to play a much bigger role within the game and, and how they sort of impact on your decisions and change things to allow you to move onwards. I think the counterbalance to that is those equipment cards looked more interesting, more varied, and could be used in cleverer ways than the quite basic and, in all honesty, obvious equipment cards you get in Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Sky. True. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. I have a concern for you. Oh, go on. You're not allowed to say, either directly or obliquely, what the numbers are that you've rolled on your dice. So there's an indirect communication of numbers, but it tells you that via good communication, you're going to play better. Are we getting into that really ropey area? <laughs> of like, I knew you were going to bring If you up. play with a code, you're going to play better. I have a snape of swans followed by a herd of cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Are we getting into that sort of crapticals? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see. Yeah, it's grey area, isn't it? It's going to be so group dependent. You could go and play this with three different groups on the same day. They'll all be playing a slightly different variance on what the information is they're giving. There'll be, there'll be groups handing out enigma machines to each other and all sorts going <laughs> Morse code on the table. Oh, it's Thursday the 9th. Thursday the 9th. Jesus, wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, that's where you're going to have to come to a balance as a group to say, this is what we allow and this is what we don't allow. I usually err on the side of being stricter and if we lose, we lose. Let's not ruin this by turning it into who can come up with the code the quickest, shall we? Now, overall on Fuji, this is right up my alley. It looks like a tough co-op 
with number manipulation where you really have to communicate with each other you really have to work with a team you might have to sacrifice a couple of boring rounds for the good off the team and because of that this for me personal absolute treasure very excited for fuji but i can see it not being one for the masses because it's, it's like hyper co-op. It's an uber co-op. You are just one amongst many and you all have to flow and the movement has to be good overall, not just for you. In fact, if you get to the village too soon, it can be counterproductive if people are too far behind. So that for me, definitely a treasure. But you as a listener will have to think about how much you enjoy that very cooperative nature. Yeah, so for me, I, I really like the art on the cards. Just wanted to give those a, a mention. They, they look very smoky and they give, kind of give a vague idea of where you are. I quite like the, the ambience of those cards. I think there's lots of things that this depends on. And another one is it depends on the sort of difficulty to cross the line. Is it going to feel like in Forbidden Island, like in Forbidden Desert, that you've just got there by the skin of your teeth and it's it's a whoop and holler moment when everyone's really proud of themselves? Or is it going to be too easy or too hard? There's too many sort of things that this is hinging on for me. I'm not the, the fan of this type of game that, that Ronin is I do enjoy them but I haven't really played Forbidden Desert enough I've certainly not played Forbidden Sky so I would turn to those before I would turn to Fuji so for that reason I'm going to just veer to the side of Trap well I'd turn to Forbidden Desert anyway okay <laughs> the jury's very much out on the other one right right <laughs> our penultimate game of this episode and my final one is Teotihuacan, a one to four player, 120 minute game coming from NSKN, designed by Daniele Tishini, the designer, co designer of Zolkin and the Voyages of Marco Polo, with a solo mode designed by David Tucci. The players are noble families contributing to the building of the pyramid at Teotihuacan. And how does that work? You're going to have up to four dice as workers. And those dice are going to have strength to them. And whatever number of pips is face up is how strong your worker is. On your turn, you can choose to either unlock all of your used workers. Because when you place them around the board, and there are eight areas on the board you can place them in, they can sometimes take actions which require them to become locked in spaces. Now, they can become unlocked via you spending cacao, which is the basic resource, or it's the money in the game, really. They can become unlocked via other players going to the space you're in. But if you need to, you can spend your whole turn for free to unlock all of your used workers. Or more usually, I will say, what you're going to do is move one of your dice around the board. Now, I said there were eight spaces on the board. It is, in fact, an eight-space rondel. And you're going to move one space, any of your dice, and then you might have to pay extra cacao in order to move them further along. Once you have done that movement, you then have three choices of what you can do when you get to any particular of these eight locations. First of all, you can collect cacao, and that's dependent upon the number of other players who are there, and you get an amount of cacao into you, and that's going to help you unlock your characters and do all sorts of other things. Throughout the whole course of the game, lots of things are going to cost you that. The next thing you can do at most of the spaces is worship. Now, there are three temples in the game they come in three different colors and they are linked to some of the actions within the game but also there are spaces where you collect resources or take certain actions which are linked directly to one of those temples when you go there instead of taking the actions like collecting the resources or whatever you can move up on the temples 
As you move up on these temple steps, there are certain areas in which you're gonna have discovery tiles and you can pay a certain amount of resources from the wood and what have you that you collect in stone and gold during the course of the game. And then you'll get those discovery tiles and they will give you extra bonuses like, like more resources or more points or ways of scoring points or possibly masks, which you can score at certain points in the game. The penultimate space in each of these temples is gonna unlock a scoring option for you if you ever reach there, but only one person will ever be able to reach the very last place and get access to that. If you choose not to collect cacao or to worship and interact with these temples, you get to do the main actions. Now, lots of them are gonna allow you to just collect those basic resources, as I've said. Also, most of them, when you go there, is gonna allow you to power up a die or two, and in doing so, you're gonna turn them to the next level up in pips and make your die more powerful. However, there's a limit to what you can do with that. Also, depending upon how many of your dice are available in each action space and the values of them, you're going to get access to more powerful versions of all the actions in the locations if you have more dice and more powerful ones there. The things you can do as well as collecting these resources is you can claim technology, for example. There's always six technologies in each of the games and you just put a, a disc down. You're going to have to pay according to how many other people have already claimed that same technology and that's going to make you better at certain things during the game and they're going to boost your actions. There are also buildings you can build and you take them off a track and you score VP for doing that and then you're going to place them down and they're going to give you locations which can be beneficial to you and again score you points as you go through the game. There's decoration you can add to the pyramid. Now the pyramid is gonna be set up in the middle and the number of tiles it starts with and the shape of the pyramid is gonna be player number dependent. The building blocks of the pyramid you can also add to there at one of these eight locations and start building the pyramid up but they all have symbols on there and at another location you can add these decorations on top of these pyramid tiles and in matching symbols on the decorations to the tiles you're playing on top of you can be able to score points so just for building the pyramid you score points and for decorating it you will score points. I said that you're going to be power up, powering up your workers. If ever you turn a worker to a six value then it ascends and that means that it's going to give you certain bonuses it's going to give you uh, <laughs> basically good things and it's going to come back as a level one worker and every time any dice ascends or every time it's the last player's turn in player order you're going to move along what's called an eclipse track and again depending upon the number of players a certain number of times that you're going to move along in order to hit an eclipse but every time an eclipse is triggered there'll be three of them during the course of the game you're going to score for the buildings you've built also for the places along the avenue of death you've been able to get and you get those by making your workers ascend so it's very important to ascend them because there's a multiplier there for building these buildings and being in the right place on the avenue of death you're also going to score points for advancing on the pyramid track for adding to it and i said that you can collect masks from the temples when you go worshiping those development tiles if you've got sets of masks they will score you every time there's a scoring you then must pay all of your workers their salaries in cacao However, at the end of the third scoring, you're all done, and whoever scored the most victory points is going to be the winner of Teotihuacan. Sean, it's a big old two-hour unit of a Euro game with lots and lots of bits in there. That was a mere skim across the top of the rules to give everyone an idea. Yeah, there is a hell of a lot going on. There's there's tiles that overlay tiles to give you the re replayability. And there's lots in that box and lots going on. But my God, could they make it any more beige? <laughs> Why is it set in Mexico, like a land of beautiful colours and just such a colourful nation that, that really 
takes on colour, even going into into death. They the colours are just part of the, everything in Mexico. And it's beige. It's fucking beige. I'm really torn on the looks. Really, when I look at it from afar. From afar, yeah, I know there's the little minute detail. No, no, yeah, but the little people milling around and stuff. Yeah, that's cool, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at looking at photos, but when I look at it from afar, <laughs> it does just wash into each other. It becomes really bland, and lots of I say loads of white as well. There's a lot of white with stark cold lines on there, and it certainly made it difficult for me to ascertain. When I got in and it was breaking it down, and you mentioned variety there, and this is certainly a box with a huge, huge amount of variety in there. I mean, incredible. Those eight spaces, the one that eight stay together, the rest can be mixed around. The technology tiles you have to be mixed around. The building tiles, the development tiles. If you name it, it can be mixed around this game and you've got variety in there. When I was learning it and breaking it down, I can see that you do need this cold, clean iconography to try and have some idea because lots of the spaces interact with each other. You need to make it clear for spaces linked to the Blue Temple or the Red Temple. I couldn't think of a better way of doing it. I kind of wish they had, but I don't hate the whole aesthetic of it. Yeah, I think I looked at that box cover and I thought, oh, this is going to be pretty anyway, and it wasn't. And it, was, it was disappointing, but beauty is only skin deep, as they say. And yes, there is lots going on. <sighs> NSKN have done it again to me. Every year I say, you know what? I've been let down too many times. I'm just not biting anymore. They've got me looking at this one, Ronan. They've got me looking thinking, actually, that's really good. This is really good. I like the interaction in this game. I love the moving dice workers and they, they increase and then eventually they're going to hit that six and, as you say, ascend uh, and come back as a level one. I, I love all of that. And joining the workers together with the movement to get more powerful moves. It's got me thinking. It's definitely got me thinking. It is the hottest Essen game. It's the number one on the want list. It's been number one on the hotness. We've started to see videos and coverage come out of it. It's generating huge buzz. It is easy to see why. And the reason is Daniele Tashini, Zolkin and Marco Polo. And it ticks so many boxes of variety and complicated and multiple phases. And it takes two hours and a lot of people do like the aesthetic of it. It's generating so much buzz, Sean. I have the same slight break on it that you do that it's hard for NSKN. Now, they've got two games that are getting great buzz, and I think we're going to cover the other one later in our, in our other treasure hunt, so we'll have to talk about it then. It's hard. It's hard to plunge fully into one of their games. It is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to just find that level of trust. You've been kind of let down so many times in the past. The publisher that always have such fantastic ideas and and you just want it to happen. And maybe this year is the year it happens, Rona. Maybe. In terms maybe. Of, of the pedigree off the game, I'm looking at Zolkin, I'm looking at Marco Polo. Anyone who listens will know I love Marco Polo. I really dislike Zolkin. In trying to sort of fathom the, the lineage of this game, and it's not just a thematic thing, but for the fact that it's Central America and that sort of civilization, I know they're different civilizations, but anyway, it's that in listening to other people have played it and reading it, it seems very much that good play is starting with a plan from the beginning 
and executing that plan as you go along and collecting the correct tiles at the correct time to trigger scoring in time for the three scorings and knowing what you want to do going into the game and following that plan. For sure. I think if you're a jack of all trades in this game, you're just going to be found wanting because you're not going to hit, as you said, that higher echelon of scoring that's going to be multiplied and multiplied. And yeah, you do really need that that focus. So, with all the upsides to it, Sean, and some of the downsides, which side of the fence are you falling on for Teotihuacan? <sighs> so... I think the the designer and the publishing house sort of negate themselves in terms of I really like the designer. I was a big fan of Zorkin and I really like Marco Polo too. So the designer right up there in my estimations, NSKN let down a few times. So a bit wary of them. So that's wipe that aside. What I'm looking at, it's got me thinking, it's got me interested. There's mechanisms that I really want to try out and I can imagine how they're going to work in my head. Whether that happens or not, I'm going to have another gamble on NSKN and say treasure, Rona. I am going to have to play your copy. <laughs> because this has gone... Yeah, it's definitely gone trap for me, mate. It's getting too much of the Zulkin vibe. It's too much for me just cogs whirring. For no reason. When I'm looking at it, oh, this triggers that, triggers that, triggers this, triggers that. I can't see a reason why you have to get so many different types of tiles. I can't see how they tie together. For me, the obstruction here is getting placed that you have to put 300 small steps into a coherent sequence. Not that obstacles are going to stop you during the game. Not that there's anything to prevent you from doing what you want to do. It's just the getting the 300 steps in the right order. And then you get a good point scoring at the end. It's that multi-step Euro, which is not the style of game that I like. So T.O. Tihuacan has got more convincing to do for me. Of course, it's the number one buzzing game. I'm definitely going to try and get a game for it. I'm actually willing for it to be good. Because I do like the designer. I really hope NSK income good. I'm just not convinced at this stage. So it's a trap. Fair enough. The, the caveat being that you are a horrible Zolkin player. The worst. You're just, you're just the worst. We'll just mention it every episode how bad I am <laughs> in that game. It's really bad for my self-esteem, by the way. <laughs> so we're going to finish off the episode with a, with an old familiar friend, or at least a, a second visit to an old familiar friend. It's Ice Cool 2. Designed by Brian Gomez from Brain Games, playing two to four players. This is a either a standalone game or an expansion to Ice Cool 1. So as a standalone game, what you have is you've got some penguins, you've got a bunch of boxes, of it essentially, that form a board. So they're like the Russian dolls. There's a big box on the outside and then the smaller ones inside. And they all come out and they clip together to form a board with walls that's basically a school for penguins. The idea of the game is that you're going to flick these penguins and they're like those wobbly bottom things that don't fall down. And... You're going to have two sets. You're going to have one that's a chaser, that's the hall monitor, that's trying to catch the other penguins by flicking into them. And the other ones are trying to get through certain doors that have got their fish tokens above it, and they're trying to get all of their fish tokens before they get caught. And that happens. Everyone plays the, the hall monitor role once, and they're going to get point cards for every fish token they get, and the hall monitor's going to get point cards for every person they catch. 
It's a very simple game, dexterity game. What this one brings, in the individual game, they've slightly changed the, the number one point cards, which in the, in the original game you could trade in for an extra go. But this one, it gives you skill shots to do. So if you can flick over a door, go through two doors, or do various things, and it allows you to do the skill shot and place the card down. That's the only real difference. Now where it comes in to its own is an expansion, and you can mix ice cool one and ice tool together and they form a big huge giant presence on the table all interlinking together when they are combined you can play the base game as it is but with two hall monitors and much more players but there's also a different game in the box it's a race game and it's basically you're racing around and it's the first players to get all the fish they're also adding sliding boxes in the middle where players on the at the end of their turn can slide a box that's in the middle of the board to make it harder for the following players and just change up the board layout a little bit. Not big steps here, Rona, more of the same. Has it enticed you enough or you think, you know what, I'm happy with my copy of Ice Cool 1? It's more Ice Cool. Great. Ice Cool is fantastic fun. It's really good. They've brought more of it out. Fantastic. Why did you choose it for a treasure hunt? Because I really like Ice Cool. And you know, the, the thing that caught my imagination was the race element. I've always thought that you could make a really nice, really cool race game with those unpredictable penguins and trying to get through the doors. And we've already got things like Pitch Car, but yeah. For which I, I there's like... a loop coming out of Essen. Oh, oh. A loop, the loop. loop. Whoop, whoop. That could be quite cool in pitch car. It really could. And I, I kind of like the unpredictability of the wobbly penguins. So, yeah. I Did you describe a race with these as nice? Because I've seen you play Ice Cool. Nice, aesthetic, <laughs> directed, under control. None of these things. Yeah, okay. You might have Still to wear better a helmet. Than me. <laughs> uh, it's an easy treasure. I mean, great. Let's tell everyone that number two is coming out. There's a couple of other options. There's some little missions you can get. You know, if you try and do something and it turns out, it means that if you're not drawing the best points cards, it evens it up a bit and you've got a chance to, to then draw more cards, but still leaves it a little bit unpredictable. A nice way to solve a very tiny problem that they had. You know, brain games make nice games. It's going to be lovely quality. Ice Core is a great idea. Of course, they're going to keep going with it on a range. I think it's great to have number two. Number three might need to be something a little bit different now. But fine, let's add it all in and have a big, massive flick around and have jolly good fun. It's clearly a treasure, Ice Cool 2. <laughs> yeah, I actually like the, the idea of the race more than the original idea of the game. I think they brought in the, the skill shot aspect, which is something that they were kind of trying to push around conventions. They're having like skill shot competitions and you stuff. You can win so a I'm trip glad. to Antarctica by sending them a video of yeah, your no, best how, trick shot. How cool are the. To Antarctica, cool. I wish I was any good at it. How ice cool is that? Uh, and. Very? Yeah. Okay, very. good. Good answer. Cool. I keep saying cool because it's ice cool, cool and it's a treasure. Yes, ice cool too is a treasure. Bing queen. <laughs> <laughs> That's all of our treasure hunts done for this episode, but we'll be back very, very shortly with another treasure hunt episode. But even quicker than that, we'll be back with our outro. Join you in two secs. And there we have it, 12 games picked apart and probably wrong about, but ho-hum, it's what we do, Ronan, we're wrong, quite often.
there's a lot of treasures in there clearly first treasure hunt we're very excited we're forgiving of some of the little flaws i want to see as we get down the line how many of the miserable traps come out as we started scratching around our lists a bit more for games well indeed once the rules blindness sets in and the the narkiness because we're up all night trying to trying to decipher what each game is <laughs> would Essen be Essen if we weren't completely sick of reading rule books i don't think it would be i don't think it'll be quite the same thank you everyone for joining us thank you sean Thank you, Ronan. We hope that's been of some use to you and helped you either add or trim down your Essen list. And we will join you next time for 12 more treasure-hunted, treasured or trapped Essen games. Looking forward to seeing everyone at the show. Don't forget we'll be on the Dice Tower booth between 1 and 2 on Thursday and Friday. And on Saturday, at what time, Sean? Saturday, I think, was scheduled in for 11 in the morning. 11 till 12, something like that. Yeah. We'll be bowling around the place. It's myself, Sean and Eleanor. We'll have black tops on. They'll say pit crew across the shoulder blades, but apparently I'm wearing a rucksack, so Sean's telling me off. So I'm going to not wear my rucksack <laughs> all the time. We'll have the game pit on either our front or on our chest. And if you see us, do say hello and do tell us what games you're most excited about or you've been playing and that are good for you because as everyone who goes there to cover it to let you know we don't get to play that many games we're talking so much meeting people talking to the lovely lovely producers and designers so we will know probably less about having played games than you will so tell us what's best and where we should be directing our playing time yeah we really do love to hear from people it makes our convention as we said before just someone to come up and say hello i really like the show or even you know what you smell fine it's interaction i'll take it i'm just feeling sorry for you that's all (laughs) just i'm having a moment see us out man as always we are proud members of the dice tower network go there at the dice tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to download the episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. And of course, we do have our YouTube channel. Go there for pit stop videos and convention coverage. If you wish to contact us, we are the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. Or another great way to contact us is our Board Game Geek Guild. Pop along there and start up a subject and have a chat. We're on social media. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. And we also have an Instagram page. And once again, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Yes, and boy, yes, and boy.